Blog Talk Radio. from the editor today, so I'm excited to start working on it, but I'm going to give you all synopsis. We're going to start going over uh, kind of what the what the synopsis is, what some general questions have been since I, wrote, since I started writing the book, and then we'll go into some snippets. I think I'm going to read my personal letters, um, not so much the content. I think it's important that everyone understands um, where my position is and what the position is, you know, how we're going to move forward. So ask away questions and do all of that. So I'm going to pull up my synopsis. Okay, so um, this is an intentional love letter to white women and women who mimic the abusive behavior of white women. Uh, it, it, I'm, I'm very intentional about making sure that the book is a short read and it deep dives into interpersonal exchanges for um, particularly black women and white women. I think it's really, really important, and you'll hear this when I start reading parts of the book later on, um, but it's really important that I name my identity is, is a black Latina woman and I only wish to speak from that perspective. I do not um, wish to impose what it means to be any other type of woman. I don't wish to do any of those things because I believe in voice and I believe that everyone should have their perspectives heard. And it's, it's out of my place to attempt to, to read or um, articulate anyone else's perspective. Um, there also is an illusion of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like we have been told that, and especially now, uh, for the past couple of years, this is this is the work that I do, and for the past couple of years especially, it has been really, really, really uh, cold word for we're doing the work. And there is a real illusion, right? The trendiness of diversity, and, and diversity equity, and inclusion is reactionary to centuries of racism and oppression. And in order to reach the intention and goals that EI works to find, there must first be a reconciliation of interpersonal exchanges that have contributed to the systems that uphold them. DEI is nothing more than an illusion until the deep dive work on both the executor and the victor of these practices are addressed. Attempting to minimize the need for this work is just a systemic issue. It creates an option for white folks um, especially women, to opt out and not have to engage in the work. And what we hope to do is to ensure that it's clear that we have a universal sisterhood to heal. 
Um, I believe that women will heal the world. I believe that sisterhood will heal the world. And I believe that it's going to be those of us who are courageous enough to have hard conversations and do deep diving work will be the ones to do that. And so we don't want to be a part of the illusion of DEI work, which is it's trendy right now. And because it's trendy, we're, we're seeing a lot of folks talk DEI but not actually do DEI. Also in the book, I introduced um, Complacent Racist Anonymous, which is a practice in healing the outer and inner self-satisfaction accompanied by unawareness of the dangers and deficiencies of systemic oppression and racism. So it's, it's an opportunity for uh, one of the things when you do the work that folks like myself can do, we dive into racism, we dive into DEI, we do all of this. There's a burden of being the one to teach folks how to be anti-racist, right? Whether it's folks writing books, whether it's folks doing lecture, whether it's for folks, those of us who do workshops, whatever it is, there, it's a heaviness. And, um, you know, very much so influenced by, like, the anonymous work of addiction, of alcohol anonymous, um, narcotic anonymous, and saying, like, there needs to be a space in my space, and I think that, that uh, everyone needs to understand your affinity group is actually, when done in healthy ways, is actually a very beautiful thing, and we want to say, here's, here's what we need from, from white women in order for us to, to engage, and, I, and, and hopefully, because it's a love letter, it, it'll be received in love. Um, Complacent Racist Anonymous is also a multi-step approach to undergo a mindset shift that will rebuke the characteristics and behaviors that are abusive to other races and ethnicities. White folks and people of color who mimic them benefit from Complacent Racist Anonymous or CRA. Um, the next, and I, I talk about this a little bit, universal sisterhood. Uh, you will hear me say I got the shirt to match. Uh, black women will heal the world, and in order to do that, there must be an acknowledgement of affinity sisterhood. These sisterhoods are encouraged to face, address, and heal the impacts of white women's sisterhood, void of whiteness, to define the boundaries and expectations of exchanging with white women and other sisterhoods. And what does that mean? That means that we, we are um, clear that there needs to be a safe space for white women to really purge and do their work amongst themselves, as with black women, as with Latinx women, as with indigenous women. All women need to have their own affinity space. And then how are we bridging those, those sisterhoods together so that there is a universal sisterhood? It's a healing workbook. So the idea of the book, the second, the, the last portion of the book is to reiterate to white women like we recognize, those of us who have done this work, we recognize that there are temptations, right? There are hard things that you are going to, um, a lot of this research for this book, I spoke to a lot of white women who are committed to anti-racist work. And we had hard conversations, like, who taught you racism? And to have to hear, like, my mother taught me this, or my grandmother passed this down to me, which are very different conversations in black households, right? And the question is always like, well, why are you why are you addressing black womanhood and white women's womanhood? And it's because that's such a large disparity. Um, we, I hope I don't have to go into detail. I, there is history in the book, but I hope that it's understood. And again, I only want to speak from the perspective that I have lived experience in and that I know. Um, 
So, yeah, we are going to go right into it. Let me, this is my pre-letter that starts the book. So just drink some water. Take, um, take a moment to breathe, receive the letter as you would like to, and give me feedback. I really want feedback. I am a... Um, equitable person, so I love to hear feedback. And you may influence, um, so this is my free letter. I wake up like this, black and a woman. I will only write from that perspective. There are many identities to align with personally and socially, this book is often directed to white women and black indigenous women of color who mimic them intentionally because when I show up in any space, two obvious identities that I am associated with. It's important to me that I'm clear about that and that it's a priority while writing this book. I will not attempt to speak from an identity that I do not belong to. However, I do acknowledge the identities that suffer from white womanhood as well. A direct relationship between black women and white women will be addressed. White fear, fragility, and rage are realities that white folks have burdened people with all over the planet for centuries. White fear is the root of white supremacy, and unpacking it is a task that white folks must be courageous in. The indoctrination of white supremacy runs so deep that there are many black indigenous people of color that mimic and perpetuate it because they are desiring to release the burden in an attempt to live life authentically and whole. Sisterhood is something that I strongly believe in. I believe that it will change the world. I know it will heal the world. There are affinity sisterhoods, and there is a universal sisterhood. Addressing white women as white women and mimicking women is because, as a black woman, I am in one of the furthest gaps of oppression in womanhood, and my sisterhood collectively suffers the most. People of color mimic whiteness, engage in oppressive practices towards black people, and learn how, how to do this directly from white. Anti-blackness is terrific, and it runs deep and wide. When writing this letter, I thought about the definition of love, the honesty, the accountability of it. Love is a vibration and the foundation of all things. There's a responsibility in it. The responsibility is first to yourself. As I wrote this, I realized that in order to effectively write, I had to remain responsible to myself and hold myself accountable to the never-had-genuine love between white women and black women. In no way, shape, or form are black women responsible for white women's relationships to black women. We are only responsible for being authentic to who we are and standing firm in choosing whether or not to engage. My goal is that it is understood that it is a responsibility that it is a responsibility to ourselves to hold the boundary because the damage is deeply rooted and, and we can only decide if and when we can engage with one another if healing is happening in our affinity groups. Any abuser does not have the right to dictate when the abuse is healed. And yes, white women are also violently abusive. This book is written to the white women who claim they are doing their work but refuse to reposition power for equity. White women who attend inclusion workshops and think that they have done enough. 
for the women of color who mimic those practices, for all the white folks who live in complicity, live in being complicit. This is for the black women who have survived showing up authentically, for the token black, black folks, indigenous folks, and people of color. It is for my ancestors who have endured the evil of white supremacy and prayed for me to have the courage to stand and hold up the mirror. It is for my mother, my sister, who stood with me as I was devastated to my core by this abuse. It is for their abuse. It is for the black women and all women of color who will read this and weep at their own experiences of abuse by white women. This love is in your hands. Handle it with care. So that is the pre-letter that opens up the book. And, and um, the entire book is written as a letter. Uh, and what prompted this entire experience was um, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years. And so I've always had the luxury of being able to choose my clients, work how I wanted to work, and I made a decision to engage in, in a system that I know is oppressive, that I know is, is racist, um, in an attempt to think that things would be different, and um, was devastated by so many. And it was, and I, and the honest, God, the truth is that it was not just white women. And I said, how are we going to address these things? How are we going to address the behaviors and the way that folks of color show up in mimicking those behaviors? And how can White women, especially because I had beautiful conversations with white women, with, with black women, with all types of women in writing books. Um, and how are we going to address these conversations in an authentic way where all voices can be heard and not subjecting ourselves to harm anymore, right? And so that was the, the motivation. And I, I journaled a lot. And I just was writing this book. And, and, I, and I said, how do I, how do I have this conversation without um, – without compromising any other. Um, so if you have any questions, any comments, just on the, on the pre-letter, please don't, please go ahead and feel free to share. Um, and however, however it comes up, I, okay, I see some questions coming in. Hold on for a second. Let me make sure I can see them. Okay. Thank you for questions and being those enough. Okay. Um, how does Dear White Women help white women do less talking and actually do the work? We are exhausted with these shared conversations. Hmm. Um, again, I don't like to speak from perspectives. I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a white woman. <laughs> Right? I don't know what that means. What I do know is there has to be a willingness and a readiness and not just on one side. I think that there is often a, uh, because of that exhaustion that you speak of, it, there's, a, there's a desire for white women to just get it because it seems, because we have been the ones who have felt the abuse and the harm. And it, it seems like it's just like, why not people, why not be better, right? What I have learned is that everyone has to be ready for a level of engagement. And not, and not every black woman, not every woman of color, not every indigenous woman, whoever, has to be in the forefront of saying, let's do this engagement. 
It has to be a choice. And so if we're not holding, and again, remember, and I'm talking about this in the book, race is not real, but racism is a construct that has been perpetuated and is very real. And so how do we, how do we say we're bold enough to say sisterhood is priority, right? And in that priority, I have to extend love enough to say, You've harmed me, and we've got to heal and get over it, and get and not get over it. And, and I don't mean get over it as if we are ignoring or dismissing. I mean move to a space where we're saying, "Are you willing? Are you willing to heal and grow? Are we willing to heal and grow? Are all women affinity groups willing to heal and grow and being committed to universal sisterhood? And if we are, what does that look like?" And, and how do we do our affinity work individually? I don't think that um, – oh, I see more questions. I don't think that um, it's fair for anyone to hold the burden of anyone's work, but I do think that if we're talking about love, love is patient, love is kind, love is, love is in a space of being able to say, Here's some tools. Can you work this out and then come back and let's see if this bridge can, can genuinely happen um, without. But I think the opportunity always gets lost because of that exhaustion. And I get it, right? Like I know that there's some, some black women who are like, I, there's nothing else that I have to pour or I'm not interested or I, I want to refrain. And that is also all right, too, <laughs> right? Like that is also you are not in the, um, you're not in a, we should not be judging anyone because I don't want to engage in this way, and we also should be inviting to those that say, I'm ready to do this work and heal. Um, have you experienced the abuse of white women? I absolutely have. Um, I absolutely have. And I've also experienced the abuse of non-white women who mimic the behaviors and really existed of not realizing that they were being racist or they were being um, sexist. You know, there's also this other, the other side of it is that patriarchy is alive because women contribute to, to supporting it as well. And so how, do, how are these balances going to, and, and let me say abusive patriarchy at that, um, how do we get, again, to the universal sisterhood of saying, like, here's, here's where the bridges have to come. Um, I do talk about the abuses that, that I've experienced um, from white women, and I'm, very, I'm a healer, so I'm very committed also to not sitting in abuse and taking charge and ownership of my body. I have the right to belong. I have the right to my voice. I have the right to share my perspective and not cower. I have the right to authentically show up as a black woman. And, and instead of asking for permission, I, I, I extend an invitation, <laughs> right? And so, uh, but that, that took a lot of, a lot of work. Um, why do you think white women opt out of anti-racist work? Hmm. Um, 
discomfort and change require a sense of giving up a power that you have to you have to be you have to be committed to the future you have to be committed to the healing and even in the even with the workbook it's a lot of addressing like all right i have seen white women start the work and then it gets it, it's pressure and then they pull away I've seen them come back after they pull away and say, okay, I learned better. And they're going against white supremacy as a white woman, right? And so so I, I think it's, it's more about a mindset shift that has to, that has to be understood. There are steps to, to change, and there are steps to doing better, like – but again, I don't want to speak from this perspective. I mean, I think it's a great question, but I can, I mean, my experience from the work that I've done with white women who've been committed has just been it's 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 hard. There's a level of like you might lose friends because you realize that your friends are really really racist, or you might get disconnected from your family, and and or they might begin to black sheep you. You know, I've heard. All types of things. I've also heard white women say, like, I was the catalyst of getting my family to shift their mind. I, I helped them see that they can't be racist anymore. So I've seen all of those things, but but in terms of, um, yeah, I, I can't I can't say that I, I know why if they're afraid of that. Um, how did black women stand in dignity when faced? With the abuse. Oh, gosh. Um, that is where that is where grace, a space for grace, both for white women and for black women to ourselves, we have to we have to be vulnerable with. And that feels risky. That feels dangerous. And that is also um, many of called chosen a few, I mean, fewer chosen, um, it's work. Like, I, I can't say anything other than, like, it is hard, heavy work that we must be committed to doing, and we cannot try to carry each other's loads. What we can do is go address our own loads and figure out, like, who taught these loads and why did they teach us and where did it come from and where is it rooted and how can we uh, shift around the things that, that we're thinking. Um, I want to talk about, I'm going to read another section from, this is the, the history space. So I, I kind of do a chronological order of history. I'm in education, and so um, I think this is very important for us to, to consider. Um, in the 1920s, there was a form of the KKK called the Women of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was formed to help kind of civilize the KKK to the public. It was birthed out of the KKK bringing, bringing in white women to aid in the imaging of the Klan. The WKKK masked their extremely toxic and harmful beliefs and practices and quote-unquote social justice and reform for women in education. Luring in white women by asking questions on pamphlets that promoted a better community. White women have been um, gruesome, if not more, in the KKK movement. 
They led many of the, the cross burnings. They, they would feed the men after they came back. They were a, the backbone of the KKK. WKKK operated in forms to uphold the civic education, moral, and quote-unquote mothering of the principles of the Ku Klux Klan. Reform work was their focus, and they would lead the, the construct of the KKK internally, while the men would lead the outward space engagement that terrorized the minority community. Wise enough not to wear the hoods and garments of the KKK, the WKKK were self-identified as church-going women committed to reforming society to uphold the American vision of their forefathers. The organizing and recruitment of the KKK, including the rallies, cross-burning, and writing of the speeches and literature that was used to find new members. There were chapters in every single state, and they played a major role in getting officials elected who were members of the KKK. Reforming public education was one of their main focuses, and this is particularly important for the state of public education as we know it today. It is extremely important to absorb that the KKK were instrumental in public school education as we know it. This is so crucial. A lot of folks don't um, understand the history of how public schools were formed, and there was a fight against private schools and, and Catholic schools and parochial schools because of um, needing aid. And so the KKK were very instrumental in, in influencing the government to begin to allocate public dollars and if you're in education, we call this per pupil revenue, towards being able to have a free vacation that was not influenced by the church. They were very, they very much did not want the church to be influencing um, KKK strong about separation of church and state. And so it was it was this clear um, movement that actually went all the way to the Supreme Court and pushed back there, and then it wound up being, and they just continued to reform it until we found what we know public education is today. It's also the, the oppression of what education, the public education system was built for in terms of um, indoctrinating folks into the quote-unquote American way and having uh, a working class or, or a poor class, really, to continue in labor. And so when you know these two things, there's, there's classism that's happening, there's racism that's happening, and that's how we have the state of public education as we know it right now. And so keeping that in mind, and as you read, there's an actual section in the book about education and, and the disparities of white women in education who are teaching in public schools that are serving black and brown children and what those biases are showing up as is when we have the level of, of disparity gaps in achievement for students in, in academic performance, we know clearly that these are coming from spaces of bias basis of racism, um, and it, I mean, and then it impacts discipline, it impacts um, so many things, so many things, young black girls, young black boys, um, young brown boys, young brown girls are being targeted in a way where special education, we are overrepresented, um, gifted and talented, we are underrepresented, and so those, all of those factors matter. So mindset, and these are interpersonal skills. <laughs> right, and and I think the exhaustion that 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 had the question earlier that the exhaustion is really coming from personal skills that are coming that are being uh, 
introduced on either side when we talk about racism. We talk about read this book and don't go do this. I, I hope that Dear White Women is not just a book that folks read. I really hope that it's a, a, a resource for black women and women of color to be able to say, here, take this book, do this work, and come back and re-engage. I hope that it becomes a workbook for white women to go deeper because, again, I don't know the experience of black of white womanhood. So I hope that, they can, that white women will look at the book and say, okay, I hear the perspective of this disparity from black sisterhood. I, you know, I hope that it inspires other affinity sisterhoods to, to write love letters. We need love letters to each other. And we, need to, and we need to get to a place where we are saying here's a resource book for us to actually do the work and say let's come back and, and, and have our moment of can't, how do we begin to bridge these gaps to one another versus this is just a book and, and there are so many incredible books, so many beautifully written books about the why and about the how, how we got here. And my goal and my hope is that it can be a, a connector. And I believe in blockchain technology as well. And so I believe that, that all of us have our, our block in this technology of sisterhood that we need to connect to and say that we're going to do the work. Um, let me see. I have to make sure I don't have any questions. Joey, if you are on the radio show, go ahead and press 1, and we will get you in for a question or a comment. Um, Instagram, Zoom. Again, if you guys have any questions, I'm getting questions into my inbox. So if you guys have hey, you any questions, open up the Joy, now? do we have somebody on? I think I hear you. Yeah, three one three five nine zero. You have. Uh, you have the line. You have the line. Three one three five nine zero. Your mic is open. Peace, guys. I'm on the plantation. Uh, Good work, sister. A lot of people complain about the problem, but nobody actually addressed it. Uh, I'm going to get with you in the private. I'm on the plantation. Love the work. Thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. That was a caller. Thank you, brother. That's the only one you Okay, That's thank you. If you could not hear, you saying that he loves the work, and thanks for, for continuing. Um, so let's keep going. Let's talk. So we've talked about the past. We've talked about the um, letters. Um, I want to share a a story um, that that an elder shared with me that's in the book. Um, not sure if it's going to stay. Again, please remember you you all are getting a snippet. Um, in the final edit, we will have the books ready. You can go to dearwhitewomenbook.com and um, pre-order the book. We are going to unveil the book in March 2021 in honor of Women's History Month and sisterhood, all things sisterhood. All right, so this is an elder black woman and a black girl story. I remember segregation, being in an all-black community with black role models that I knew. From doctors to lawyers, my community was thriving. When integration happened, we were left with no sense of ourselves, and white folks came in and took over our businesses. Many black folks thought white folks' ice was colder than theirs, and if they engaged with white folks, they were prestigious. The first time a white girl called me the N-word, she did it as if it was something nice. She said, 
Aren't you happy to be my nigger friend? As if the privilege of being her friend was my benefit. She was a horrible friend. She was mean and would get upset when I wouldn't when I when I chose not to be the dog when she wanted to play with me. She would eat her apples in front of me without offering to share and she would constantly call me the N word. If I had something to eat, I always shared with her. And when we played, it was me who made sure that we took turns. I was only about eight years old, but I quickly learned that she thought she was better than me, and she wasn't. Thankfully, I had a big sister and my mama to tell me every day that I was a good girl. The last time I got to play with her, I will never forget. We were on the swings, and she was pushing me too hard. I kindly asked her to stop, and she refused. Then I asked her one more time. She didn't. I jumped off the swing and told her if she wants to play with me, she has to be nice. Something my family was putting in my head as I would come home every time I played with her, crying. She ran to her mother, and I could tell she was over-exaggerating what happened, probably even lying. Her mother comes over to me and says, did you tell my daughter she wasn't nice? I replied, no, ma'am. And she started yelling at me and told me that I was a stupid little nigger girl, and I was no longer allowed to play with her daughter. That hurt my feelings for days. And the impact shaped my life. My mama cared for my first heartbreak. And we talked about it for about a week and how to deal with white people as a little black girl. My little brain couldn't understand because I really thought she was my friend. Mama gave me the things I needed for life when I was eight years old. And I still use them now as an 83-year-old woman. All I wished for back then was for white folks to be nice. That's the only word I had for it. As I listened to my dear elder sharing this story with me, I was reminded of my own daughter, Diane's first week in kindergarten. I, myself, have three children, a boy, girl, and boy. All of them were reading before they entered school, and they were raised with clarity and full acceptance of their natural selves. My daughter, Diane, is very fair-skinned, and she loves being black. She quickly was introduced to the world that loves her black representation and hates her black girlhood in the first few days of kindergarten. She came home on her first, fifth day of school with joy and with her joy and eagerness stolen. I sensed her hesitation, but I didn't know where it was coming from. She was only four, so I assumed she didn't like when I told her that she had to wait two days to go back to school because the weekend is when school is closed. Instead, she blurted out, they told me I was white and I had braids because you were black. I told them I am black. I am black, mommy. I'm black. I literally had to stop whatever I was doing and embrace my princess and affirm that, yes, she is black and that her braids do represent her blackness. She is more than enough. I had to have the talk with my four-year-old after only five days of engagement with white supremacy. My soul wept for her innocence. I was enraged at her having to be exposed to the abuse so soon. The toxic happened with all of my children and stolen a piece of their spirit each time. This time, I had to assess who said these things to her, and she shared it with a white girl classmate, that, and, two, that, and, and she led two Latina and two black girls to say the same thing. She described the incident as the white girl bullying the other girls to, to doing it. I wept. 
with my daughter, I wept. In this diverse school, my precious baby girl was exposed to white women of youth and women of color who mimicked them before she was even five years old. This experience has shaped her, and my job as her mama is to do the healing work with her. This was her first experience, but it would not be her last. The short versions of this continue throughout school. White women teachers would try to tokenize her because they thought she was fully assimilated, usually because they assumed her father was white. They quickly learned that there is not an oppressive, that she, she does not come from an oppressive or assimilated place at all, and she does not feel like it is a threat if she does not assimilate. White teachers have shifted from having an affinity with her to saying that they were actually afraid of her with no justification within days. My daughter has has no white friends and she doesn't trust any of her teachers. Someone someone has been teaching and encouraging their white daughters that this behavior is acceptable. Sorry, I was tearing up remembering that day she came home from kindergarten. And um, and and the connection to to the elder's story, who was very similar to to my daughter. Um, you know the the array, the range of blackness and the range of color. I mean, and then you know, women who mimic these behaviors and these abuses contribute to colorism, which is within communities of color. Right, and which has nothing to do with the execution of white woman abuse or, or any or white supremacy. Well, it's influenced by that, but us continuing the behavior and perpetuating it. So, um, this we we need to. Can you fathom? Can you just close your eyes and imagine being four years old and introduced to to racism in this way and not having the words to articulate? All she could say was, "It's not nice." And she bullied me. That's all she could her her four year old mind, and and then to even even um, realize how it became a normalized thing. My my daughter is also a dancer, and so she's done palm, she's done dance all of her life, and even the racism that exists in dance, right? And having to continue to to have these hard conversations and know you are enough and yes, you can dance and yes, you deserve and yes, you belong. Um, it's exhausting. And, and how do we, how do we get our daughters, right? Get our daughters to shift these, these behaviors, get, change our mindset, set our daughters up in a, in a more effective way to, to ensure that these things don't continue to happen. Um, I see one more question. Let me make sure I, I'm a little bit reading it. Um, how do black women and women of color who mimic white women do better? Um, now, this I can't speak to. As a black woman who has experienced black women who mimic the behaviors in um it is often the assumption is you got to get in the game to change the game, right? That's what that's what folks of color tell ourselves. We say we enter these systems to to change the systems from the inside out. Well, we are hundreds of years behind, <laughs> right, to do that. And so, what happens is when when you associate someone's livelihood 
to their voice, they are they are going to continue to, to show up and say, am I going to eat to provide for my family, or am I going to risk not having livelihood, right? And so the first thing is that we have to, to, to have this understanding that the, the mimicking of behaviors are coming as a survival technique, <laughs> right? They're not coming from this faith of really being safe enough to be authentic. It's coming from a survival technique. And so if I have to survive, if my livelihood is attached to an oppressive system, and, and I have really in my head say, said to myself, I'm going to enter this system from the inside out and, and, and aid even the sisters who, who of sisters of any background of any affinity sisterhood, if they say we are going to enter that, there still needs to be this bridge of, and I talk about this in the book too, of strategic sisterhood. We have to strategically say, um, and, and when you have white women who are accomplices, they they understand these strategies. They understand I might need, need to be the white voice to get us this bridge. <laughs> right, like I might have to be the white voice to get you in the door, because or it might, have, however that strategy looks. So the same needs to happen with all women who are strategically saying that we are putting ourselves in these positions of, of systemic oppression to to bring about change. The issue is we are all working in silos. Right, we are all working in silos, and there's no way that we can foster change. And foster and, and this is uncomfortable even for for um, sisters of the affinity groups that I belong to. They, this is uncomfortable for many women to not hear this because it's, it's like we need to focus on ourselves. And there is a level of that, but there is a clear balance that has to happen of us saying, "And this is when and how we're going to come together." And um, those affinity groups. So so it, it it's real. I don't think that. Women of, women of color who mimic the behaviors, I don't think that um, it, it's, it, it's a need to do this pointing. It's a need to comply. I don't think it's a need to do this at all. I think it's a need to say, here's a solution. Are you down to come with us and, and create universal sisterhood together? And here are some resources so you can see why. Right? Like here are some books, you, you know, read White Fragility read White Rage, read all of these great books that can get you to say, okay, and now what do I do, <laughs> right? Like, now what do I do and how do we get there? Because um, universal sisterhood is, is necessary. And, and, again, and I know that not everyone is going to agree, and that's all right, too. Um, oh, great question. Do you believe in sisterhood with white women? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Do I believe that it can happen if there's still abusive behaviors? No. And do I and do I think that there is a, a need for space for grace for both sides? Absolutely. And how do we do that in a productive way? Is is constantly my question. Constantly my question. How do we how do we say? How do I not feel like I have to cower? or overly stand up in the present, and how do white women completely um, embrace and, and accept 
school black womanhood or whatever the womanhood is, right? How do we how do we do that? And I do believe that it's going to be some of us who will be courageous enough to say, let's do this work, let's heal, and let's get this done together. All right, thanks for the questions. These are some great questions. Let me, um, Joey, do we have anyone on the radio? I mean, yeah, just press one while I get to the next section. Uh, no, not at the moment. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to speak to the characteristics of abusive behaviors um, that white women tend to tend to give us. Um, and so there's a. I'll read fourteen abuses. The first one is denial. White women will deny they are abusers of black women. They will deny they are racist, and they absolutely will deny their participation in oppression. Things that you may hear white women say in this characteristic, I can't be racist, I see no color. Why does everything have to be about race? I don't understand race, and I have black friends. Second characteristic is othering. White women are quick to other a group of people, especially black women. When a white woman others, it is rooted in maintaining her position of power to highlight her own superiority complex. She will group black women based on biases and assumptions. She will say things like, those people, I am afraid. If black women would just dot, 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 I want to help you be better. All of these things suggest that the person or people she is othering is less than her. She somehow has the formula to make them Make her comfortable. Number three, colorblind. To claim you don't see color is diminishing the experience of people who are abused by racism and oppression. And again, this is so thing uh, to address because race is not real. However, racism is. And so we, it's so complex as how we have to address it. But when you say you don't see color, you are diminishing my experience of someone who is identified immediately as a person of color. Number four, racial microaggressions. Subtle verbal, nonverbal, layered and cumulative insults that are constant in any pattern. White women will give these in ways that do not cross legal lines, but abruptly disrupt black women in the moment. These often come with a smile and a slighted compliment. So when you hear these microaggressions, um, and it's, it's very interesting, you know, policy is a huge thing in how racism and oppression continues to exist. And so there are legal lines that often don't have to be crossed. And sometimes the moment that, that a white woman just says that she's uncomfortable, it immediately becomes a microaggression to, to a black woman because we're, we're attempting to show up and be authentically in our brilliance. And so those slighted compliments of, of I just wish you weren't aggressive when there's no aggression that's coming from who we are culturally at all, and there's no space for understanding that. Those are those microaggressions that that, um, a friend of mine, she describes it as someone just sprinkling water in your face constantly all day, every day, and you are expected to show up in perfection each time. Number five, lies and assumptions. Creating a narrative of a black woman allows a white woman to appease her ego and not have to be held accountable to doing what is right as a human being. 
the danger in the positioning of white women when they create these narratives is despite a black woman telling the truth, it is silent. White women can create an entire story, share the story with others, and it is believed. And a white woman speaks on the behaviors and characteristics of a black woman. I encourage everyone who hears it, actually go to the black woman and effectively listen to her. Believe black women. White women will lie. Black women will hide all the time. These are the behaviors. So um, that is so important. That is so important for anyone who hears any narrative of a black woman. Go investigate just any woman. Go investigate yourself and come to your own conclusion because um, opportunities get robbed, lies get told, misrepresentation happens, and when the white woman's word is priority and the black woman's word is never heard, that's where those disparities begin to, begin to expand. Number six, bomb dropping. This is the act of white women initiating a challenging issue within the subgroup of people they abuse and, and being coy and exiting from the process. For example, if a white woman is in a group of women and their whiteness is being challenged, she may redirect the attention to colorism in the black community and opt out of having to engage in the conversation any longer. She will sit back like a slave owner, of the overseer, observing, inciting, and then enter back to be the savior. Black women and indigenous women of color must stand for the sacredness of their, excuse me, must stand for the sacredness of their affinity sisterhood and not allow this to happen any longer. And this, and when we do this, this is this is uh, one of those difficult conversations. When we do this, it also ensures that white sisterhood deals with their whiteness and the abusive of the whiteness within themselves. There is no what the only experience we can share with white women in the abuse of white women is as the as the, the, the one who abuse has been given to. They must do their own work within the affinity group and there are so many courageous white women that we can direct them to and say, do this affinity work and how do we bridge? Because that bomb dropping happens so often and it distracts distracts us from actually saying where is universal sisterhood coming up in. Which leads to number seven, the savior complex. White women really think they can save the world and they really think they can save black women as long as it doesn't threaten their power. We have to make sure that white women are not neglecting all of the sisterhood. And the only way to do that is to invite the bridge to happen and say we all need to be courageous. And, and I think another thing that needs to be clear that I'm not going to read tonight, but it's, it's very much in the book, is that black women are not interested in taking the position of white women. And for the most part, color are not interested in taking the position of white women. We do not want to be abusers to other women. We do not want to uphold oppression or racism. We want to be, to be in, in universal sisterhood where there is a shared link of this is my block and this is your block and let's create this change. Number eight is wokeness. In the age of progressive movement, white women are absolutely capitalizing on the woke movement, interjecting themselves as they always have. They lie to themselves and think that because they are, quote, unquote, doing the work, they, they don't still have to do the work. While there is an appreciation for these white women because they are taking charge of raising awareness to other white folks about their abuses, 
they still absolutely are not willing to truly provide equity to black women by leveraging their powers to give access to black women. Interestingly enough, nine times out of ten, black women are not interested in having the same type of power because we do not want to contribute to abuse of others. Usually when you talk to a black woman or indigenous women of color about power, they're speaking on having authentic full agency of themselves and their community, something that is evenly distributed and empowers who do not want to do what white women have done. Abuse is not appealing when you have been abused. Number nine, silencing. White women always find a way to silence black women's voice and experience, especially when it is calling for them to be held accountable, especially if they are protecting themselves as lives. Superiority complex. White women will demonstrate they believe they are superior to black women in a variety of ways. This reveals itself in subtle and blatant ways. If a white woman displays and states things that demean and question black women, there's a large likelihood that she believes she is superior. Number 11, justification. When white women do any type of justification instead of taking responsibility of the abuse they cause, they are intentionally diverted. There is always room to explain for the sake of true, true accountability. However, when that comes without apology and remorse, there's nothing more than excuses that dismisses the abuse interjection. In conversations and in movements, white women will interject and hijack space to center themselves as a priority. 13, avoidance, ignoring and not facing or accepting responsibility allows white women to opt out of the process of accountability and healing. Hostility and defensiveness. White women can exert anger to black women almost with no cause. They are triggered at any black woman who is confident and able to stand for themselves and it invokes anger and defensiveness. It will defend that black women are incompetent and or they simply don't like a black woman because she rubs them the wrong way. So those are just some of the characteristics. I'm sure that, you know, there, there can be more. Um, and those are the things that contribute to, to racial battle fatigue. Um, there is, a, as defined by uh, William A. Smith, um, racial battle fatigue is, is like, it is just, it's exhausting, as we heard with the question earlier. It is exhausting to do this work and every time showing up and every time being committed to the end. Um, you know, we need we need sisterhood. We need we need to start linking. Um, so we are at the final five minutes. Um, I gave an extra hour just in case there were questions or anything. Um, I would love to hear from folks. Joey, is there anyone else? If not. Um, thank you all no, for joining. I hope. Okay, thank you. I hope. I hope that um, you do get your copy of the book. Um, I hope that you are committed to this work. I hope that there's a little bit of inspiration. I hope that all of us who are aligned to say let's do something different, we are committed to, to, to showing up for each other, for our daughters, for for our sons, and for the world. I do believe in sisterhood. I do believe in and womanness, I do know that we can do this together. It's hard work. And I also know not everyone everyone has different roles. Let me not let me say it in that way. Let me say it in an affirmative way. Everyone has particular roles and we all just need to connect. I love you all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you were on, please, please, please shoot me an email and a gift to me from us to you is a free copy of the book. So when, when the book is out, you will get the first um, round.
comic books that will be coming out in the press. So I appreciate you all. Thank you all for joining. Have a good night. you